El Fanboy, episode 12. What's going on? This is Mario Francisco Robles, and you're listening to the 12th edition of the L Fanboy Podcast. What's going on, everybody? What's going on, guys and gals? Even though no gals uh, uh, seemingly responded to what I said last week, I'm trying to figure out if this podcast is a sausage fest. And uh, based on the fact that no ladies reached out via Twitter or Facebook or any other way, I'm uh, getting the distinct feeling here that... I'm just speaking to a bunch of dudes. And I mean, you know, if, if, if that's the case, that's the case. But I might have to try to figure out a way to bring the ladies in on this somehow. So we'll figure that out. Uh, how do you like that? How do you like opening the show with an unplanned uh, co-tangent? Tangent? Anyway. So uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a cool week. Uh, this past weekend, for you guys who've been following me for a while, uh, my buddy Jeremy Scully who, you know, we used to write some stuff together, and he and I have been friends now for, I don't know, like 14 years almost. Uh, He got married this past weekend, and I was a groomsman, and that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. I'm actually thinking, uh, just for for the fuck of it, I'm going to put up a trailer that I created uh, from footage from his bachelor party, just so you guys can see. It it was funny. It was, it's, it's 60 seconds long. It's harmless. And uh, for those of you who enjoyed our the, the, the stuff we used to do together, you might get a kick out of seeing us be idiots in this trailer. But anyway, so yeah, so the Scully got hitched, and uh, congratulations to him. I had a great time down there, or actually up there, upstate New York. And uh, aside from that, uh, you know, I, I've been trying to, uh, as usual, gorge myself on entertainment. Uh, a bunch of my shows came back. And I actually rewatched a movie. I rewatched a movie that is rather popular right now because part two of it is about to come out. Yes, yes, yes. I saw Guardians of the Galaxy, everybody. Uh, you know, remember, I, I saw it back when it originally came out in theaters. And I remember feeling, and I've said this before, just a tiny little mini recap again. I remember thinking it was pretty good. Uh, I thought it had the potential to have a lot more heart. Uh, for me, it was a l- ultimately a little too jokey, a little too irreverent, and uh, I almost kind of fell asleep during the final battle, and I definitely didn't walk away from it feeling like a lot of you other people out there who were like, oh, that's the best Marvel movie ever. Eh, for me, it was like, it was okay. It was interesting. I liked what it set up. I didn't. It didn't really get me, though. So I rewatched it last night, because I'm going to go see a press screening of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 tonight at uh, Sony Lincoln Square here in the city. And I just kind of wanted to refresh myself. I, uh, you know, I always try to do that whenever possible. If I'm going to see a sequel and review a sequel, I want to watch what came right before it so that I walk in and I can see how everything sort of works together and complements one another or possibly contradicts one another. And in general, I just kind of wanted to like reacquaint myself with, uh, with what they're doing over there and maybe even see if I liked it better this time. And to be perfectly honest, I did. 
I actually did enjoy Guardians of the Galaxy more than I did back in 2014 uh, for a couple of reasons, really. Uh, one is sheerly 100% logistical in that I watched it in the comfort of my own home, fully rested and excited to dive back into it. Whereas the last time I was on vacation and I saw it at like 1030 at night and I was probably too tired to see a movie. Uh, so that right off the bat made it a better viewing experience for me. But also I just enjoyed it because my expectations were more reasonable. You know, when I went to go see it the first time, I th this was after a couple of weeks of hearing, oh my God, you've got to fucking see this movie. It's so good. It's so good. Oh my God, it's so incredible. It's so different. It's so this, it's so that. And you know how that works. When you go in and your expectations are suddenly very high, uh, it's hard. It's hard for any movie to live up to that, much less a movie that you weren't inherently invested in to begin with. You know, I don't know the Guardians of the Galaxy. I never read the books. I never followed any of that, so I didn't have any sort of inherent fandom walking into the theater. All I really had was a million voices in my head saying, dude, this movie's going to be fucking amazing. And, you know, it for me, it didn't deliver. But watching last night, you know, coming in with those very sort of bare-bones expectations, uh, I did enjoy it far more. But it also sort of hit the point home for me of something that I've been noticing. I wonder if I have like some sort of disorder or something's wrong with me. I swear to God, it doesn't matter what movie it is, but I get sleepy when the big CGI battle in any of these types of movies begins. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me that I can watch hours and hours of, of scenes of just interesting character development and, uh, you know, good dialogue and, like you know, dramatic acting or even just humorous acting. Just, in other words, scenes that have no bells or whistles. Scenes that just have a couple of actors in them doing what they do best, vibing off each other and, and creating a world for me. Uh, I can watch hours and hours of that and be completely riveted on the edge of my seat. You give me one sequence where there's 80 spaceships shooting lasers at each other and heroes going, whoa, and bad guys going, ah, and explosions. And I swear my eyes start to glaze over. My mind starts going to, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow. What errands do I have to run? Like I just get, I totally check out. And that happened again last night. I wasn't tired when I saw Guardians of the Galaxy. I was I was vibing on it. I was enjoying it. I watched it with my wife. She had never seen it. She was loving it. And for me, that always makes the experience better when you're watching it with with uh, with someone, you know, a friend or your your significant other, and they're also loving it. It kind of makes the whole thing extra fun for me. And uh, everything's going great. And then we get to the third act, and the the space battle begins over Xandar. And I swear, I started looking at the clock and realizing, oh, fuck, there's still 35 more minutes of this. And I started to feel my lids get heavy. I started to get like drowsy and completely disinterested. I don't know if it's a CG thing. I don't know if my brain just shuts down when there's that much like overstimulation going on. I don't know what it is. But in all these kinds of big sci-fi epic action adventure movies, whenever that inevitable third act conflict happens, I just start to check out. 
I wonder if anyone else out there that happens to. I was talking to my buddy Greg about it last night after the movie ended. And he said he gets the same way, actually. He just sort of like, he also has a hard time just staying locked in once that happens. So it made me realize maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I'm not just uh, a salty old codger. I used to blame being 33 and maybe thinking that I, I had outgrown that stuff. I used to think maybe that was it. But maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's the CG. Maybe it's the it's the disorientation. I don't know what the fuck it is. But whenever the, the that big thing happens at the end of these big action sci-fi movies, I just get fucking sleepy. I really do. Um, so it, it, just to kind of put it like to, to compare it to another movie, when I saw Rogue One last December, both times I saw it, you know that third act takes place in two places. You know, there's the space battle. And then there's the terrestrial stuff with Cassian and Jin and everything that's happening on land uh, as they're trying to get the Death Star plans and all that star, sort of stuff. Like, every time they went to space, I, ba I basically zoned out. And then every time it was back on land, that's when I was totally locked in again. I, I, I don't know what it is. I've just got this disconnect. Uh, for me, it first became very prevalent when I saw Man of Steel back in 2013, because I was really enjoying that movie uh, for the first, like, hour and a half. And then once the big battle took place, aside from my sort of, like, you know, moral quandaries as a Superman fan about it, I just found myself, like, I became so far removed and detached from the action as soon as it became all about explosions and CG beings smashing each other to pieces. Like, that just, I don't know, I just check out. And in terms of like recent memory, recent history, the only like big third act extravaganza that I stayed locked in on from start to finish, that just comes to mind. There might be more, but I was, in, in getting ready for this episode, I was trying to think about ones that worked. And off the top of my head, it's the Avengers, the first Avengers. Uh, I thought that had the perfect balance between CG and emotional character beats. You know, I was very invested in what was going on. I was very invested in watching Captain America trying to save lives and watching Iron Man and them coordinate keeping the battle and the collateral damage low and and the, the, the mix between CG guys beating the shit out of each other and humor and heart and the way it all sort of played in to bring in the team together and the whole thing, like, that kind of got me. They, that one, definitely, I did not check out for that one. Uh, I did sort of check out on for the sequel in Avengers Age of Ultron. There's very few moments in that that I even remember, um, aside from maybe Thor saving those people in the car that was falling off of uh, Sokovia, uh, and then uh, Quicksilver you know, sacrificing his life to save, uh, what the fuck is his name? Hawkeye. But overall, like even that one, I just sort of checked out. Like, I don't know. I just, I, I think I, I, I've, I've got some sort of weird block when that big third act happens. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I don't know if it's the CG. I don't know if it's the fact that I'm just getting too old for that shit or what, but if anyone else out there has that issue, let me know. I'm very curious about that because I, I personally can't believe it that I can sit through hours and hours 
of event uh, of TV shows and movies where there's basically nothing going on but people speaking to each other, like on Veep or Silicon Valley or you know some of the other shows I watch, uh, you know Better Call Saul, where it's literally just dialogue scenes. And I could watch that and be totally entertained. As soon as you throw the fucking spaceships and lasers and explosions and all that sort of shit at me, bye-bye. Anyway, uh, so overall, I liked Guardians better this time around. Uh, for me, it's still sort of, you know, it's in the B range. It's a B or a B plus for me. Uh, all the people who gave, gave it an A, I think they're a little on crack. But hey, you know, we can agree to disagree. Um, going into tonight, I'm a little more hyped, but I'm still trying to keep my, my expectations reasonable. Um, uh, I, I spoke to Kelvin, uh, and you know, he saw it last week at a screening and for him, and this is, this is kind of a biggie. He's one of those people who adored guardians of the galaxy. He's one of the people who's not like me, who saw that first one and said, it's like right up there with the winter soldier for him in terms of the best movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he saw Volume 2 and was not terribly impressed, guys. Um, which I guess is, is, is going to help temper my expectations when I go in there tonight. Because, uh, yeah, he was saying that for him, it just... He said the plot was kind of weak and hard to follow. And overall, for him, it just hit a lot of sour notes. Like he said it, overall it was enjoyable, but it definitely wasn't a great movie, and it definitely was nowhere near as good as the first. So just keep that in mind. Kelvin was not, was none too thrilled. He liked it. He gave it a shaky hand wave when I asked him what he thought. But, um, you know, it's going to do huge, though. You know, it's going to do huge numbers. We'll get to that when we get to the box office of things. But uh, that's that's it looks like it's going to fucking destroy things. Uh, and in terms of my review for volume two, uh, that's going to be a YouTube exclusive on the El Fanboy YouTube channel. So I'm seeing the movie tonight. You can expect the video review to go up uh, probably on Thursday, right before opening day. Um, and for those of you who are going to see the film Thursday, probably at 7 o'clock, since they're doing the earlier and earlier previews now, uh, I'll have it up in the afternoon of Thursday, if you if you care to, to check out my two cents on Volume 2. And by the way, I started the show with a tangent, and here's another tangent. Um mentioning the seven o'clock previews it kind of pisses me off that they make them so early now i remember back in the day i used to go like for me it was like a special special honor that i would bestow upon a movie that like you know what that's so good that looks so good and i'm so excited about it that i'm gonna go thursday at midnight the night before it opens it'll be the first screening uh, that happens on the East Coast here in New York. And I'm going to see it before everyone else sees it on Friday because I just can't wait. And now they're just making them earlier and earlier. Uh, they, you know, they have 7 o'clock screenings. I, I think there's another one coming out later this year. One of these movies has like a 5 o'clock open on Thursdays. It's like, what the fuck are we doing here? It's not even a Thursday. It's just now Thursday is just basically becoming opening night. 
And in terms of Hollywood accounting, it's fascinating to me that Thursday gets lumped into the Friday grosses nowadays. And that makes no sense. It made sense back in the day when like, when it was still like the way I was describing it. Because if you're seeing it Thursday at midnight, you're really seeing it Friday morning. So it made sense that the previews were you know, linked to the Friday numbers. But if you have a movie opening on Thursday at like 6 or 7 o'clock, how the fuck is that part of the Friday grosses? That's just... That's some shady accounting right there. But anyway, okay, that that was a, another tangent. I'll try to keep those to a minimum today because there's a lot to talk about. So in terms of stuff I've been watching, just you know, sort of a quick recap. Um, I added a new show to my to my repertoire. Uh, it was it's called Crashing, and it's on HBO. And uh, actually, one of my listeners, Aaron Verola, had messaged me about that because he knows I'm into stand-up, and he knows that the series takes place uh, a little bit in Levittown, Long Island, which is where my in-laws live and where he lives. So he had reached out to me a few weeks back, and I let him know, like, this has actually been on my radar for a while. Because, uh, you know, again, I love stand-up comedy. I really do. And the series centers on a stand-up comic going through a rough divorce and basically throwing himself into the world of stand-up and trying to make a success for himself. And in it, you know, you kind of learn a lot of the ins and outs of what it takes to become a stand-up comedian. Um, It hits close to home to me because it films in New York City on the streets where I used to hang out a lot. And it's very sort of geographically accurate, which I always find cool too. Because I'm kind of a snob when it comes to things that are filmed in New York. I can always tell where like they're driving somewhere. I'm like, oh, that's 86th in Amsterdam. And then like they change camera angles. Like, no, that's 57th in Madison. So, you know, that's definitely not the same scene. But they're trying to play it off like it's the same avenue. I- I'm Listen, I'm a total nerd when it comes to that stuff. But uh, Crashing actually plays it pretty well. Like when he's walking around the West Village, like the camera is following. Like the- he's actually where he says he is. Um and it was cool. One of the recent episodes was on McDougal Street. And that was like, that was my street. West 3rd and McDougal going to Mamoons for falafel and going to Off the Wagon and Cafe Wa and all that sort of shit. Like it's, this movie is like basically, it feels like it takes place right in my backyard, this movie, the series. So Crashing, uh, I'm loving it. It's funny. It's insightful if you're into stand-up comedy. Uh, it's got a cool emotional story to it as well in terms of, a man just sort of realizing, you know, as his marriage comes to a close and assessing where he's at with his dream and his life and his goals and what it's going to take for him to make a success for himself. Uh, you know, so it's got heart, it's got humor, and it's got a bunch of great comedians playing versions of themselves. So it's sort of meta. It's pretty awesome. Uh, so Crashing is right up my alley. Then there's uh, Veep, which continues to be great. Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, I mean, those writers deserve so much credit because there's so many twists, so many turns, and so many reversals of fortune, like not even just throughout the course of a season, throughout the course of an episode. Things get like set up and then knocked away and then set up and then reversed and then twisted. Like for a little silly, you know, character-driven comedy about guys working on you know on on apps and software uh there's so many little power plays and reversals like there's a lot of intrigue i'm just those writers deserve a lot of credit for taking a fairly seemingly mundane setting 
and making it this very interesting. It's almost like espionage sometimes. Some of the shit that happens on that show, though, with all the twists and turns. So, loving Silicon Valley. Um, I'm also trying to catch up on the latest season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Not really sure I've ever spoken about that with you guys, but that's one of my favorite current running comedies. And uh, I'm like most of the way through this season that just wrapped a little while ago. So I'm almost caught up on that. And then there's a show that I, 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 it's in a category that I wonder who else out there has this category for themselves. Shows that are basically background noise. Shows that, that, that you watch while you're doing other stuff. Um, and for me, that show is Archer right now. I, I, I kind of rotate between what's, you know, what series is in that spot. And right now that is Archer. Archer, I put on my phone on the Netflix app when I'm like doing the dishes or when I'm folding laundry or when I'm doing some other errand around the house, Archer is just sort of on. And I wonder like, does anyone else, do you have that show like that? You know, because I, because obviously I have those shows that I watch in a very dedicated way where I sit down on the couch and I give it my full attention. Then I even have shows that are sort of in the middle shows that I watch while I'm playing Candy Crush on my phone on the couch. I'm kind of doing two things at once. Uh, And then I have shows like Archer, where it's just literally you're on while I'm doing other things. And I'm enjoying you, and you're fine, but I'm not going to sit and watch you tonight or tomorrow or ever. So I'm just curious if anyone else has like those background noise TV shows. Um, And now, before we get into the week's news, I want to take some time to answer the uh, questions sent in by you guys, the listeners. Um, So, all right, so here we go. The the first one I would like to tackle comes from Mr. Nathan Ivey, who sent me another nice uh, sort of long-form question uh, to sort of condense it. He wanted to know if, if I think that the Skywalker saga will continue past episode nine. Um, so, you know, here's what I think. Uh, I really get the sense that they're not sure and I don't blame them in terms of Lucasfilm and Disney. You know, I think there are a lot of pros and cons to both paths, but you know, let's just sort of take a step back for a second because I can't necessarily predict which way they're going to go just yet. I still think that they're figuring that out, but I think the right thing to do is to close off this particular saga with episode nine. And that that's not to say, though, that there won't be another trilogy. But I think that trilogy is going to begin with an episode one. That's what I mean. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, in other words, to see the beginning of a new trilogy that centers on another main overarching saga that's set in the same universe. And that's not to say that there can't be some crossover. That's not to say that Ray couldn't pop up or Ben Solo slash Kylo Ren in some form couldn't make an appearance in this new trilogy. But the overall focus of it would be elsewhere and it pushed things in a whole new direction. I think something like in episode one is much more likely than in episode 10. Um, I could even see like just like a flawless marketing or branding transition from one saga to another. You know, if you think about it, they never put the episode or episode number in the titles of these movies. Think about it. Star Wars, A New Hope. 
Star Wars The Last Jedi, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. You know, it, it doesn't say the episode in it, right? So if you're Lucasfilm, you can unveil a teaser, a, you know, a year or so after episode nine has come out for a movie called, uh, fuck it, uh, Star Wars The Ghostly Bunghole. You know, and you, you show the logo and you show some iconic sort of imagery that's not tied to any one particular character, but things that we sort of associate with Star Wars and a, almost John Williams' flourish of music. And people will lose their fucking minds about Star Wars, the ghostly bunghole, not really knowing much about it, right? And then when they come to see it, in the opening crawl, it reads, Episode 1, the ghostly bunghole. And it perfectly conveys that the Star Wars continue. You know, the, the Star Wars itself, you know, the fact that there are wars in the stars and what's going on up there. So it'll, it'll convey that the Star Wars continue, but that a new storyline has begun. So in short, Nathan, I think the Skywalker saga could, should, and probably will end in episode nine. Um, and that's how I want it to go. You know, I, you know, cause I can totally see Lucasfilm and Disney backing off on something like that in favor of like milking the winning formula of the Skywalkers. But, you know, in my heart of hearts, I think they're pushing things towards a close. You know, they killed off Han Solo. Luke will usher in the end of the Jedi in this, you know, in one form or another in this next movie. We know Leia can't appear anymore. Obviously, you know, Carrie Fisher, uh, rest in peace. So the main three ties to the original trilogy are being phased out one by one. So I think, I think Disney is heading towards closing off this saga with episode nine. And I think there will be another trilogy, but it will start again at episode one. Uh, with new characters, sort of a new subset, exploring a new corner of the universe that was, you know, given, created for us by, by Mr. George Lucas. I hope that answers your question. Um, and just side note, since, you know, this seems, tangent seems to be a running sort of thing in this episode so far, uh, I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but you guys catch that, that uh, Ryan Johnson is no longer writing episode nine. That's sort of worrisome, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, granted, I haven't seen Last Jedi, so who knows if he's even a good fit for this universe. But for me, that was one of the exciting bits about episode nine, because I'm not I'm not a huge Colin Trevorrow guy. For me, Jurassic World had a hell of a lot more warning signs attached to it than exciting things. So hearing that he was directing episode nine got me kind of meh. But knowing that Ryan Johnson had signed on to write 8 and 9 and direct 8 got me sort of excited, you know, because Johnson, I do think, has the goods. I like what he's made so far. Um, I think he can make a really good sci-fi action adventure. And I thought he would make a good through line to finish off this trilogy by, you know, directing, I mean, writing episode 9. And it recently came out that he's no longer doing it. And I don't know why that happened. I don't know what what changed there. There isn't really a lot to report on that end. But it just, you know, he recently clarified that he, he is no longer involved with episode nine. And uh, I don't know, man, that, 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 that stinks because I don't know if I trust Colin Trevorrow without a really good writer 
pushing things in new and exciting and interesting directions, you know? Um, but okay, moving uh, back on to the main point here. I'm answering questions from you motherfuckers. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I just called you guys motherfuckers. I'm sure you guys are all wonderful individuals. But just know if I ever curse at you or call you names, I love you. And that usually is a sign of love. Anyway, okay. Next one I'm going to answer was uh, was from Aaron. Uh, Aaron asked, in short, he asked, uh, you know, if Wonder Woman tanks, uh, what ha- you know, what what does Warner Brothers do? What happens to the DCEU? Um, well, thanks for the question, Aaron. Uh, for starters, I just want to make it clear: I don't think it will tank. I think it'll be a very soft hit. I think it'll be a low point for the DCEU in terms of sheer numbers, but I don't think we're going to see Wonder Woman come out and flat out bomb. So I just kind of want to make sure that that is known before I delve into this. Now, if Wonder Woman somehow manages to not even break even, and it manages to get battered by critics just like the last DC movies did, uh, what do I think Warner Brothers does? Damn, man, that's a tough one. I, uh, it's such a tangled web at this point. You know, I, I've discussed in great detail before that, you know, the DC Extended Universe is in a uniquely awful situation. You know, they hitched their wagon to Zack Snyder, and all of the first four DC movies were made under his vision, or lack of vision, if you ask me, for that universe. You know, just a reminder, Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, Zack Snyder. Wonder Woman was primarily made before Warner Brothers could assess the damage done to the DC brand by Zack Snyder with Batman v Superman. Uh, Justice League, directed by Zack Snyder. So you've got a franchise that learned two movies into its life cycle that the direction they're heading in wasn't resonating with fans. And yet they still had three movies left on that shitty approach, which was Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, and Justice League. So they did the right thing, and they ordered a full-on course correction. They took Snyder out of the captain's chair. They put Jeff Johns in that position. They embarked on a branding overhaul where everything now promises to be lighter, more fun, more heroic, and less self-serious. And yet, we're not really going to see if they can deliver on that until the middle of next year. Next year, after two more DC movies come out. The, the, the final two movies of the Snyder era have to come out before we get to see if their new approach is going to right the ship. I mean, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Okay, to get metaphorical on you here, it's like, okay, since we're going with the ship thing, right? It's like you're on a ship, right? You know where you're going. It's a destination that's 100 miles ahead of you. And 20 miles into that voyage, a big leak opens up down below in the bilge of your ship, you know, the basement of your ship. While you're down there trying to patch, seal, you know, trying to seal that leak, you hit the 30-mile mark because, you know, you're chugging along, you're making it. So you hit the 30-mile mark, but there's a leak. And then as you're patching that one up, another leak opens up at the rear of the ship. You suddenly realize, oh, shit, this path is no good. There are lots of like glaciers and icebergs and rocks down below. I I'd better change course because I keep springing a fucking leak. So you go upstairs, you change course. Great. Now you'll avoid further damage. Time to go back to the to the downstairs area to patch up those first two leaks. But guess what? 
You get down there and you realize two more have opened up because in the time it took you to course correct, your ship took on more water. So now you look at your map and you realize, yes, you're chugging along, but you're still a good 50 to 40 miles away from the promised land. So now your only hope is that your slowly sinking ship can survive the last half of the voyage. And if you get there, it'll be amazing. It'll be everything you initially set out for. But remember, you're taking on water fast, and there's no guarantee that you'll make it there with any great degree of success. To me, that's the DCEU in a nutshell. That's their current predicament. They've identified the problems, they're fixing them, but it might end up being too little too late. Um, and look, it's, if Wonder Woman fails, if Justice League is another costly disappointment, I think Warner Brothers is in a real shit position. At this point, they're too heavily committed to the current franchise to reboot it. You know, they can't pull like a Sony thing with Spider-Man and just reboot it midway. Because by that point, Aquaman with Jason Momoa, who will have now appeared as Aquaman in two different DC movies, in uh, Batman v Superman and Justice League, you know, by, by, by the time Justice League comes out um, and the Snyder era comes to a close, Aquaman will be most of the way through production. Uh, several of the 73 different Batman-centric movies they have lined up will be deep into pre-production. So they'll just have to view the first four DCEU movies as a wash and hope that the next five will be more prosperous. But I'm telling you now, if it does go that way, if it goes that way where Wonder Woman and Justice League don't do what they were hoping it would do, uh, you're going to see budgets get reined in. You're going to see safer bets being made. And you kind of already are. The fact that so many of these DC movies are suddenly Batman things and he's about the closest thing to a safe bet as DC slash Warner Brothers has these days, uh, I totally think that we're already heading in that direction. All right, we're going to see nothing but safe bets. Anything remotely risky or creative or envelope pushing is going to go out the window. And the folks making these movies are going to have a lot of sweaty, anxious Warner Brothers executives breathing down their necks the whole time. So any sort of avant-garde, interesting DC movies, anything about like, like, like even shit that doesn't have to do with like mainstream characters, the fucking booster gold, like all these little subset movies that they, that they were trying to get made. Those are going to get cut off right away. Those are going to be the first on the chopping block. If these, uh, if these next two movies this year don't really, you know, uh, don't perform. Um, and we're going to see the budgets get rained down. That's why like, I wouldn't be surprised if if the folks behind Green Lantern are being told to find a way to make the story more earthbound or very self-contained. Because they're not going to want to spend the 250 million bucks it takes to make a proper space epic. You know, a sci-fi space epic costs a lot of fucking money. And they're going to want to try to find a way to do like what uh, what what uh, Reese and Wernick and Ryan Reynolds just did with Life. Where, yes, it's a sci-fi movie. Yes, it takes place in space. But it's a very self-contained story on a ship with basically just two locations. That's how they were able to make that movie for like whatever it was, 70 million bucks. Because space movies are hard to make. So I, I just keep bringing that up because, like, 
Green Lantern is going to be a very costly fucking movie, and I have a feeling that Warner Brothers is trying to rein in these budgets now because the DC stuff, as it stands, is not the mon- the money printing machine that they hoped it would be. Um, anyway, that was a very long answer, um, but I hope that I hope that got to your question, Aaron. Uh, it's it's a fucking it's a fucking tangled web over there right now. Um, okay, moving on. The next question. Uh, Tavo, Tavo Borrego wants to know after the, you know, n- now that we've seen the first trailers for Spider-Man Homecoming and the first trailer for Thor Ragnarok, uh, which am I more excited about? Um, and I guess it's kind of funny because I, I, I gave Spider-Man Homecoming like a, a 10 on the hypometer and I gave Thor Ragnarok like an eight or a nine on the hypotomer, uh, hypotomer? hypotenuse hippopotamus hypotomer um but it actually is ragnarok uh for me it's a no-brainer you know as excited as i am to see more of tom holland's peter parker slash spider-man uh there's a whole lot of been there done that when it comes to good old you know our our friendly neighborhood spider-man you know i've already seen five spider-man movies in theaters and while homecoming, homecoming, homecoming definitely looks like it could top all of those, it's gonna feel and be fairly familiar territory to me, and I feel like to a lot of us. Ragnarok, on the other hand, other hand, looks like a totally new animal. You know, we're gonna see Thor as we've never seen him before. We're going to be exploring corners of the Marvel universe that have never been touched before. We've got an insane cast. We've got an exciting young filmmaker in Taika Waititi. Oh, and we've got a Hulk. So yeah, Thor Ragnarok for the win. It's the superhero movie I'm most looking forward to for this entire year. More than Homecoming, more than Wonder Woman, more than Justice League. Oh, shit. (laughs) I just realized that. How fucked is that? I... A lifelong DC fan, someone who's currently sitting here with my This Looks Like a Job for Superman t-shirt on, uh, who would have cut my left nut off for a Justice League movie growing up, I'm more excited about a Thor movie than I am for Justice League. A fucking Thor movie! I don't give a shit about Thor, and I never have. This goes to show you what a sorry state of affairs it is if you're an honest, realistic DC fan these days. How the fuck is Thor Ragnarok more on my radar than Justice League? Anyway, all right. Uh, last one I will answer is from Alex G. Uh, Alex G wants to know, basically, you know, if I had a time machine and could go back to 2008... What would I change about the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Um, hmm. Well, off the top of my head, uh, I'd have Kevin Feige and his team be more confident right from the outset. Um, look, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, so I know that they couldn't have predicted what a runaway success the MCU would become. But now that we do, I wish the initial uncertainty had never happened. Uh, What am I referring to? Um, Okay, The Incredible Hulk suffered a lot during its production. There were creative clashes between the star Edward Norton and uh, Louis Leterrier. Uh, That led to, like, extensive rewrites and alternate cuts of the movie. 
there were battles between the actor and the producers and the studio and all that sort of shit, and that's why Norton ended up exiting the MCU instead of being part of the Avengers and, and, and playing Bruce Banner in the Avengers. They had to recast right off the bat with Mark Ruffalo. Um, and the movie itself just ended up not being the success story that it could have been. You know, and it's funny to think about that because can you imagine now in 2017 hearing that the star of a Marvel movie is throwing his weight around and rewriting the script? Can you even fathom the idea that a Marvel director wouldn't do exactly what Feige wanted him to do? No, you can't. Because now it's just understood. If you're working for Marvel Studios, you're just a cog in the machine. You're serving a much larger purpose. But in those early years, there was a lot of hemming and hawing. You know, that that's what happened with Hulk. There was the, you know, there was also the way that like there was a way that an uncertain studio hijacked John Favreau's Iron Man 2 in order to set up Avengers because they were scared their current approach wasn't going to work in the in the form that it was. You know, there was the questionable decision to let Shane Black and Robert Downey Jr. go off and make their own movie with Iron Man 3, a movie that ended up feeling like it was on an island by itself and didn't, in my eyes, really work. So in short, Alex, I would apply the current well-oiled machine confidence that Marvel Studios has these days to the first two phases of films. I would apply today's confidence, today's TV series-like production model, today's slow and steady wins the race strategy, and today's you're a member of the team and Feige is the coach mentality to the first wave of movies so that there would be overall a more sure hand from the guys running the studio so that things could have been a little more consistent, a little less rushed, and, you know, that's basically it. So that is my answer to your question, Alex. I hope hope that hits it for you, okay? Um, Now, let's go ahead and get into the usual sort of, you know, we're going to talk about the week's news. We're going to start things off with a look at the box office. Today is Tuesday. And we've got the numbers for this past weekend. So to the surprise of no one, Fate of the Furious took the weekend for a third weekend straight uh, with almost j- just shy of $20 million this weekend after a 48% drop. And then that was followed up immediately by uh, a couple of indie movies. You got uh, How to Be a Latin Lover. Uh, which came in at number two with 12.2 mil. Uh, Then there was Bahubali 2, The Conclusion, an Indian movie, which made just over $10 million. Then there's The Boss Baby, which is still hanging in there with 9.3 million. And rounding out the top five is The Circle, which landed with a thud. And it's kind of, once again, more and more evidence that... You know, having stars in your movie, even exceedingly hot stars, even stars that are in the middle of a huge run, doesn't fucking matter. Because who's on all the posters for The Circle? Huh? Who? Emma Watson. That's right. The star of Beauty and the Beast, which is the number six movie. Beauty and the Beast is a fucking monster right now. That like I getting tickets for that was like trying to get tickets to a Star Wars movie. That, like the first two weekends it was fucking impossible. 
And that movie has made over a billion goddamn dollars, did it do? And now here she is, right off, right at, 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 at her peak popularity, Emma Watson, um, as the star of The Circle, standing alongside Tom Hanks on the posters, and it didn't even crack $10 million. So it once again just hits that point home that having a marquee star on, on you know in your movie doesn't mean dick anymore. And also, you know, if you are one of these big time actors, uh, you know, making a, a studio blockbuster no longer ensures that your other movies will be a hit. You know, there used to be that whole like one for you, one for me mentality where like a serious actor would take the time to be in sort of a big spectacle blockbuster because they thought, okay, this will help me get my smaller movies made and it'll put people in the audience for my smaller movies. But that just, you know, that that is out the goddamn window. The circle is a big turkey, big, big turkey. Um, but okay, uh, while we're on the subject of box office, while we're on the you know, earlier, I touched on Guardians of the Galaxy uh, as of yesterday, Guardians of the Galaxy had already raked in $106 million internationally. So, uh, and here domestically, it's expected to do really, really, really well. Uh, something that maybe like, you know, double or triple what the first one did. So uh, here, here's what we're looking at right now. Um, so it made the 106 mil, right? And right now, it is actually outpacing Avengers Age of Ultron in terms of pre-sales. And it's looking like it's, it's going to make, you know, just north of 150 million bucks on its opening weekend. Although there's already people saying that they think it's going to far surpass that. Um, you know, one stateside exhibition chief uh, told Deadline that I'd bet well over that mark. So uh, just look forward to that, guys. It's Keep an eye on that. Guardians is going to do some crazy fucking business. Um, and, you know, I mean, good for them. You know, hopefully it's good. I'm going to see it tonight. I'll let you guys know what I think. But either way, it looks like Guardians is destined to have a biggie. But okay, moving on from Zibak's office. There's a couple of stories that are going around out there that caught my eye. Uh, there was this talk that, uh, you know, Ben Affleck was... They, they took a picture of him holding a script in his hand that everyone thought, oh, that must be the Batman script. I don't think so. Um, I really don't think so. I just kind of want to shoot that down real quick. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on that. I think it's more likely that, you know, right now there, there, there are reports that he's looking at making a movie with his brother. Uh, it's a movie called Triple Frontier. It's a movie that's been in some form of development for quite a while now. And... Um, you know, at one point, Tom Hardy and Channing Tatum were going to be the, the the leads in it, and now there's talk that they're looking at, you know, bringing in the Affleck brothers to replace those two. Now that they've left, uh, a couple things on that front. You know, Paramount has dropped the movie. Netflix is looking to acquire it. But either way, it looks like you know something's happening right now where the Affleck brothers are mulling over joining this movie. Uh, so I think it's a hell of a lot more likely that he was walking around with the script for Triple Frontier than the Batman. Uh, it seems like it just seems too fast, too soon for me uh, that the bat uh, that a new Batman script would be ready by now. Especially when you consider what less than a month and a half ago it was officially announced. I think 
that they were going back for a page one rewrite on the Batman. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry guys. I, I hate to piss on your parade. You guys are so excited about that. Him, him possibly having a Batman script. I really think if anything, that's a script for triple frontier or any other thing. Cause he's also a producer. Yeah. Affleck works on a bunch of stuff. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's bad, especially also when you think about like with the way the studios are with these, uh, with these scripts and how top secret everything is. The way it was packaged, you know, there wasn't like the watermark that goes across it that stops people from photocopying it or, or reveals whose script it is. It was just words printed on plain white paper. It looked like a regular everyday script, not like the top secret, crazy Warner Brothers Hollywood script for their Batman movie. So, but while we're on the subject of Batman, there were just some cool remarks from uh, director Matt Reeves. Who he was talking about what it means to him to be making the Batman and, and where that character sits in his mind. And um, here's what he said. Uh, he was giving an interview and he said, It's a strange thing to be involved in the two franchises, which were the two that I was connected to most as a child. Obviously, he's referring to Planet of the Apes and now Batman. He continued, he said, uh, I just was obsessed with Batman when I was a kid. What I find so interesting about him as a character is that, as far as a superhero goes, he's not superhuman. He is a person, and he is a tortured soul who is grappling with his past and trying to find a way to be in a world that has a lot, uh, that has a lot that's wrong with it, and trying to find a way to reconcile all of that. That is a really powerful character, in the same way that Caesar is such a powerful character. He's referring, obviously, to Caesar, uh, Andy Serkis's ape from Planet of the Apes. So, you know, it sounds like he's definitely someone who has a deep reverence and love for the character. Uh, it's interesting to hear that, you know, this and apes were like his two big staples as a child. And imagine, you know, put yourself in his shoes that you get to direct movies about those characters, about those mythologies. Like, Jesus Christ, talk about a, talk about a dream come true. So good for him. Um, and I agree with him. Batman's a goddamn fascinating character. So, you know, hopefully his, uh, the Batman movie, you know, lives up to the promise of what, you know, what it can be. Uh, either way, it sounds like they have the right guy at the helm at the moment, if you know what I mean. Um, moving on, just a kind of quick update for fans of Stephen King's The Dark Tower. It was revealed that we're going to be getting a trailer Possibly as soon as tomorrow. Um, it's actually it's been officially announced that the first trailer for the movie will be available online at some point tomorrow. That's tomorrow, May third, Wednesday, May third. So hell yeah. Um, you know it's funny. I've never read the books. I know very sort of little about the books, but I'm a big Stephen King guy overall. And, you know, I'm kind of excited for this movie from what I've read about the premise and for what it can be. I'm kind of excited for this movie. I know it got delayed from it was, it was supposed to come out very soon and now it's coming out in August. Um, but, you know, I, 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 uh, I hope that this is awesome. It seems pretty cool. I love McConaughey. I love Idris Elba, um, you know, and I love Tom uh, Stephen King. So I hope it's really good. Uh, I guess the trailer tomorrow will be 
our first real chance to see whether or not it will be any good. Um, I think it's, I, I love a little bit of trivia that the guy who's directing it, uh, he taught himself how to speak English. He learned English so that he could read the books in their native tongue. He was such a fan of the Dark Tower as a kid, reading them in his, you know, I think he's a Swedish or something. Uh, reading it in that language, that he he taught himself English so that he can read the books again in King's native tongue. So having a guy who's that dedicated uh, can only mean good things, you know. Um, I think, I think. Um, and also, you know, it's interesting to me, though, that the budget is so tight, and that might be one of the reasons that you know, the uh, film got delayed. I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, this movie's going to be pretty big. At least the books are in terms of the scale and scope and the amount of effects and sets and things that it's trying to tackle. And they've only, they're only making it for $60 million. That's pretty fucking cheap. And that's something that, you know, I, 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 uh, I actually wanted to give belated credit to Dean Israelite, uh, who made the Power Rangers reboot last month. Uh, for that, like he made a movie that got every dollar out of that low budget onto the screen, and he was able to make a movie that looked pretty damn good, but didn't cost a lot of money. Just like I mentioned earlier, the guys at Life, the guys who made the Ryan, you know, the uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal Alien movie last month, Life did too. You know, squeezing a lot out of a little. So this director for the Dark Tower, uh, you know, Nicolaj Arcel, I believe is his name. Uh, I hope you know he he has the same success at wringing a lot out of a little because they did not give him much to work with. Sixty million dollars to tell a story like the Dark Tower and start a franchise—that's not a lot of money. So good luck to them, and we'll have our first chance to see what they're cooking up over there tomorrow when the Dark Tower hits the web. The trailer hits the web. Um, Another bit of breaking news I want to share with you guys. I know there was some concern about a writer's strike, and this morning it became official that the you know, Writers Guild and, and you know, they've all they've reached a deal uh, that's going to at least extend things for for a, you know, for three more years before they have to worry about this. Uh, so they've got a tentative agreement on a new three-year film and TV contract after the old contract had expired at midnight. So for that, in case you guys are worried about that, you know, remember a few years back there was a writer's strike and it, it wreaked all kinds of havoc on Hollywood and a bunch of movies suffered because of it. Um, hell, without the writer's strike, we might have actually gotten George Miller's uh, crazy Justice League mortal movie. Who knows how that would have gone. Uh, and there are movies that came out that you could tell were half-baked because the writers weren't working on them. They had to strike in like the middle of production, like uh, James Bond, Quantum of Solace, uh, and a few others. So, you know, good. They've averted the strike. So if you guys are worried about that and the, the, the havoc it would wreak on your favorite movies and TV shows, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, and I just mentioned uh, James Bond, Quantum of Solace, uh, there's a new rumor about the next Bond movie that I want to share with y'all. Um, right now, IndieWire is reporting that the uh, the co-owners of Eon Productions are looking at uh, Paul McQuignan. Paul McQuignan is best known for the BBC Sherlock series starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Um, 
Yeah, they're looking at him to possibly direct uh, Bond 25, which is obviously just the nickname for it. Uh, that would be pretty awesome as far as I'm concerned, uh, especially if they're going to move the series you know, or, they, or they want to tell a story that's very sort of espionage very much about the spy work and the detective work and showing James Bond as a brilliant sort of investigator agent who's trying to piece together some sort of riveting you know conspiracy or plot or something you know this guy knows how to tell a story that centers on uh you know a complex figure trying to figure out something that's totally nuts um so hearing that they're you're know, looking at Sherlock you know, at a Sherlock director for Bond twenty five he you know, he's he's done four of the episodes this uh, this McQuignan, uh including what what you call it what was that one oh yeah he did he did the Great Game which handled the introduction of Moriarty I mean he's really really good and he knows how to handle villains and heroes and and intrigue and mystery so I think that would be a great way to go. Um, and he also, you know, he, he can be a little cheeky, you know, the, the, the Sherlock series can be a little cheeky and, you know, the Bond movies have been sort of devoid of fun these last couple of installments. And, you know, I just, I think McQuignan can maybe bring some of the, uh, the cheeky humor and some of the fun back to the franchise. So, uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. I'm curious if that's going to move forward. Um, now, kind of switching gears a little bit, and this is less about a movie and more about the movies. J.J. Uh, Abrams recently came out speaking about the idea that it's inevitable that, you know, movies are going to be in theaters for shorter amounts of time, that digital downloads of movies are going to become more readily available, um, and that, you know, the theatrical experience as we know it is going to continue to change. Uh, so first I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what he said, and then I'll kind of let you know what I think. Um, first, he started by relaying just kind of like a humorous story about a theater, uh, a theater chain in his wife's hometown in Maine. Uh, he says, there's a theater chain that I'm convinced hates movies. Uh, he said this at the Institute, at, at the, uh, how do you pronounce that? The Milken Institute Global Conference on Monday, yesterday. He said, you know, you go there, they're angry with you. It's cold. There's no music. The lights go out when the movie starts. There's no ceremony. It's the most uncomfortable seats. You're convinced there's something in front of the projector. Meanwhile, most people in that audience have better TVs at home than the image you're seeing. And you know what? He's got a point. You know, I'm a little spoiled here in New York where, you know, because I'm one of these people who hates the idea of the digital downloads and the screening room and all these programs that are getting worked on now to basically have movies have simultaneous home releases. I'm against that. I love the theatrical experience, but I live in New York, which is an entertainment hub. You know, it's an entertainment capital in the world. And a lot of my theaters are pretty damn awesome. The ones that I frequent, you know, you go to like AMC Fresh Meadows, you go to any AMC theater and you're in good, you're in good hands. You got, you know, nice recliner seats. You got the surround sound. You've got, you know, there's a, you have like the pre-show before the movie or you can watch the making of a, of a movie. And, you know, there's a, it's still sort of a deluxe experience to go to a theater. But I guess if you go across the country, 
not everyone abides by that. There are a lot of theaters that just kind of throw a projector on a screen. And when you look at it that way, of course, there are people who would rather stay home and watch it in the comforts of their own home. So it makes me want to say to like theater chains across the country and even around the world, like, what are we doing here? If you're not going to make the experience special, if you're not going to make it, you know, sort of transcendent and a special, almost magical experience as it should be, then you deserve to shut down and you deserve to have people rather stay home and, 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 and see the movies some other way. So, you know, I guess that's just something that we got to keep an eye on that I have to be more open-minded about, but I'm spoiled here in New York where the theaters are still pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, so Abram's little story there got me thinking about that. And he went on, he continued, he said, you know, I understand the economic realities of it, and it's tough. At the same time, if they don't make it worth people's time, you better not call people to the theater and give them that kind of experience. You know, so it's just more on that front. Uh, he addressed, you know, the the idea of like the that screening room program. It's It's one of several things that are being developed right now to give like a home experience for movies. And, you know, he says, clearly, you know, people do want to see movies and can't always get to the theater. It seems like an inevitable thing that movies become available uh, at a premium. Um, so, you know, and he's absolutely right. Look at the grosses. People absolutely love movies. The, the, the medium of movies has never been more popular, I don't think. And yet, you know, I think theater attendance is going down. So the appetite is there, and something is going to have to change here, and I'm anxious about it, but I guess, you know, if if uh, if everyone doesn't get on the same page and make the theater experience more special, then this is kind of, you know, we kind of have no choice but to deal with this sort of evolution of how we get our movies. Uh, I know for myself, I'm definitely going to be going to the theaters when, for movies that I really care about. Because to me, there's just something religious about that whole experience and getting the popcorn and the soda and sitting there and watching the trailers and then the lights dimming and the curtains opening a little wider and just being trans, you know, transported to a whole other world in a room full of strangers having a, a, a joint experience together and going through something together. Like, I love that. But uh, so that yeah, that's just me. But I guess I'm starting to understand more and more why people are just like, why the fuck should I go to a theater if the theater sucks? Um, and I can definitely have a better experience at home. You know, I, I get it. I get it. Um, uh, and then just sort of speaking of like the movies that I'm interested in that are on the radar that maybe aren't necessarily on yours. Uh, did you guys hear that Jeremy Renner is going to do a Doc Holiday movie, a Western about the famous fucking gunslinger? Uh, I don't know if you guys know about Doc, but... If you haven't seen Tombstone, get the fuck out of here and go watch it now. Leave your leave whatever you're doing right now and go get Tombstone because Tombstone is in my top 10 movies of all time. Uh, and you know Val Kilmer's portrayal of Doc Holliday is one for the ages. Um, you know Huckleberry. And you know hearing that they're going to make a movie that centers on Doc. You know Doc is usually treated as a sort of supporting character in Wyatt Earp's story. 
Um, you know, in both, in, in, in the movie itself, Wyatt Earp, that starred Kevin Costner, in Tombstone, you know, Wyatt Earp was the main guy and Doc was just a supporting you know, player. Uh, now, you know, there's a couple of novels based on Doc's life, one that's called simply Doc, and then there was one last year called Epitaph, a novel of the O.K. Corral. Uh, they, you know, they chronicled the life and times of John Henry Doc Holliday. And those are, you know, the, those novels are being optioned into a movie. And Jeremy fucking Renner's going to play him? Like, yes, please. It, it's one of those, like, perfect castings as far as I'm concerned. Think about Jeremy Renner. Th- doesn't he almost seem like a cowboy to you already? Can't you already picture him with a cowboy hat on and a holster on his hip? He's got that, like, rugged, outlaw, mysterious, stranger sort of thing about him. It, to me, it's almost shocking that we haven't seen Jeremy Renner in like a big screen, big deal cowboy movie yet. Uh, so for me, this seems like a perfect marriage of a, a, a performer who's tailor-made for this genre, a character that is iconic and beloved in, you know, in, in American history. Um, I'm very excited now. I don't know when it's going to get made. Uh, it was just announced, uh, so it's probably going to be a little while. But hell fucking yeah, Jeremy Renner as Doc, bring it on, man. Um, And I'm actually going to end the podcast with another one that's just sort of on my personal radar. Uh, But I want to stick with stories that I know you guys care about, so let me veer back to that. Uh, There's talk that the second season of Netflix's uh, Stranger Things is going to be, you know, it's going to be more uh, scary. They're going to play up the horror stuff. It comes from a quote from uh, actor Finn Woolhard. Uh, he was speaking to People magazine. And he said, uh, you know, there are going to be some challenges that the characters face that are real, that are disturbing. I think this season will be a lot more dark, a lot more horror oriented. I think people are going to like it better than the first season. And that sort of stuff is music to my ears because I'm a horror buff. I love horror movies. And too often I, I see series that have the makings to be a good horror series just kind of like cop out and become more about other side elements. You know, like I, I always kind of bitch and moan about American Horror Story on FX that it's called American Horror Story and it's really not all that scary. You know, the, the first season was pretty good in that regard. The second season I thought was very good in that regard. But then you had the ones about you know, Coven. You had the one about uh, the freak show. Um, and then even like Hotel, where it's like, it, it's almost more of like a comedy. Um, and we are like, it's not to say that they're not well made. It's not to say the characters aren't interesting and the directing isn't good and the design isn't good and blah, 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 blah. But I want like good horror on TV. I want to see an ep- you know, a series that fucking creeps the shit out of me. And uh, I guess it's kind of cool to hear that Stranger Things is going to be a lot more horror art oriented uh, if we are to believe in uh, you know, what Mr. the young Mr. Wolfhard had to say about it. So that's pretty cool. Looking forward to that. And that's pretty bold, though. That is pretty fucking bold that he's saying that people are going to like it better than the first season. Because that first season was very hard to top. You know what I mean? That that first season was some top-tier television right there. Um, But okay, now while we're on the subject of horror, there's also, you know, M. Night Shyamalan. He officially made it official in the last week or so. 
since our last episode. He uh, made it official that he's making a sequel that's uh, called Glass, and it's essentially a sequel to both Unbreakable and Split. Um, so that's fucking awesome. And he had, he took some time to be sort of, uh, you know, to sort of self assess and to look at like, you know, now that he's back in the limelight, uh, and being, you know, uh, what do you call it? You know, he's just, he's being revered again and he's being looked upon again as an exciting filmmaker. Uh, he's looking at like, you know, sort of what changed or what brought him back or where did he go wrong? And, um, Here's what he had to say. It's sort it's sort of a a brainy answer, but we'll we'll dissect it in a second. He said, "What is that architecture of an artist's life that causes them to not be able to reach us?" You know, for me, this is all a theory of there's an optimal moment of experience and instinct that happens and it causes this electric moment. The way that life is, you know, experience kind of becomes your expertise and becomes safety. You use your craft to protect you, and you stop doing that instinct thing. For me, what I've been trying to do is become a beginner again. So, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of, to me, I interpret that as he was overthinking it. After his initial first two movies put him on the map as a filmmaker to sort of keep an eye on, he started allowing like the process and the expectations put upon him to sort of get in the driver's seat rather than trust his instincts, rather than be more just creative and, and, and trust himself to create something from scratch. He was trying to create something for others. He was trying to live up to what M. Night Shyamalan meant to people. You know, it's kind of like that idea of like, forget everything you think, you know, just, you know, you throw it out and start over again. And it looks like that's what he's trying to do. And, you know, in, in all honesty, you know, Split did seem like a return to form. So I'm excited to hear that he's trying to basically just kind of restart after he's lost his way. And uh, hell, man, bring on glass, bring on more M. Night Shyamalan goodies. Um and also in the horror reign, in the horror realm, you know, they, they released, you know, Universal released a little uh, featurette yesterday for The Mummy. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but there is a featurette um, for The Mummy. It, it focuses on The Mummy herself, on Sofia Butella's character, the main monster baddie slash goodie in the movie. And I say goodie because... You know, the, the the featurette for me is a little bit worrisome because again, I want this movie to be scary. I want it to, I want these this universal horror universe to be fucking a horror thing. I want it to be a horror franchise. And this featurette, if you watch it, um, it makes her very sympathetic. You know, it really plays up her backstory and the sort of tragic turn that things took. It played up how emotional and interesting Sofia Butella is as a performer. And, you know, it just, it seems to me like this movie is going to make you almost root for the mummy. And, you know, I, I kind of tend to like it when that sort of stuff happens by accident. You know, I, I kind of tend to like it in these horror movies where, yeah, you start loving Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers, but not because they're so deep and interesting, but because there's something like badass and cool and different and mysterious about them. 
sometimes you get these movies that just try to over explain everything and suddenly they're not as cool. You know, it, it, it backfires rather than make those characters front and center and interesting. It actually makes you resent them. We, we as an audience don't like being told that, Hey, this villain's pretty cool. We like sort of being subversive and feeling that way ourselves. You know, I've been feeling that way forever. I mean, you could argue that that's what happened. That's one of the reasons why the prequel trilogy for Star Wars suffered so much. We loved Darth Vader. And not knowing that much about him made him sort of cool and mysterious and interesting and a total fucking badass. Then those trilogies happened. The, 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 the trilogy happened. And they totally over-explained everything. And they ended up making Anakin Skywalker less interesting. He was cooler when he was just Darth Vader. And I bring that up here because it's just like, it looks like this movie's going to try to make the mummy character very interesting and deep and tragic and, and, and sympathetic. And I don't know that I want that. I just want a kick-ass mummy fucking taking lives and, and you know, I just, you know, if, check out the featurette if you get a chance and let me know what you think. To me, it just seems a little on the, we're over-explaining the villain sort of thing and basically turning the villain into like the hero. Uh, and I don't fucking care for that. Um, but on the subject of heroes, you know, Wonder Woman's got a movie coming out and they released a fourth trailer for the movie that really did nothing for me. Um, Oh, what to say? You know, there's this new one-minute trailer that's out there. It's uh, retreading a lot of the older footage. And to be perfectly honest, as as listener Unboxing John continues to point out to me, you know, they have yet to show anything in these trailers in the way of a standout moment for Gal Gadot as Diana Prince. It almost seems like the studio or the filmmakers or the producer, whatever the fuck, they're not too, you know, confident about her as Wonder Woman. Uh, and this isn't coming from bias. Like, you know, I'm not saying that because I didn't like her. I'm actually one of the few people who like Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman a lot. She was, for me, was one of the more exciting bits about Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. So I'm rooting for her. I don't think that she's poorly cast. But it is interesting that in the trailer, we just kind of see her being pretty and strong and striking iconic poses. There hasn't really been anything about the trailer that makes you really kind of sink your teeth into this character or that shows that she's some sort of, um, like there's going to be some sort of interesting performance from her or that she's a standout character. Uh, it's just, yes, we get it. She's beautiful. We get it. She strikes some iconic poses. But who is Diana Prince? And aside from her looking badass, what what is my hook for this movie, which looks very murky and gray and I don't know. I just, the marketing for me isn't really doing much. This fourth trailer didn't really do much, but retread the same old shit. And I'm still just waiting to see that moment where I go, oh, wow, Wonder Woman looks like an amazing character. I can't wait to follow her story here. Um, but okay, that's... That's that on the Wonder Woman. And uh, we're getting here towards the end, folks. Just giving you a warning. Uh, then there's, you know, I guess we knew this already. 
But, you know, some people might have thought that since the Guardians of the Galaxy have become so popular and the fact that uh, Thanos is a big part of what's going to happen in Avengers Avengers Infinity War, you know, you wouldn't be wrong in thinking that the Guardians of the Galaxy are going to be a huge part of the next Avengers movie. But Chris Pratt says, not so fast. Um, He describes the team as more of like, they're going to be supporting players. Here's what he said uh, in a recent interview. He said, we definitely will have a strong presence, but we are playing supporting cast. You know what I mean? We're we're there to help them tell an awesome Infinity War story. But Guardians is cosmic. It, It is its own special offshoot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it like you know so it looks like even though um you know you have Gomora and you have uh what the hell's her name the one played by Karen Gill and Nebula who are Thanos's daughters in there uh it looks like you know they are you know the, the Avengers will be front and center in Avengers Infinity War so just in case anyone thought that the Guardians were going to possibly overtake them uh no rest assured Guardians are supporting Avengers are prime. But, um, all right, so that was it for me in terms of news that I was really interested in this past week. Um, and I told you I kind of wanted to close off on another movie that's on my radar that I think should be on yours out there. Uh, a movie I hadn't even heard of up until very recently is going into wide release this weekend. It's called Chuck, and it, it used to be called The Bleeder. Uh, it's got a great cast. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of like practically everyone involved here. It's starring Leif Schreiber. It's starring Naomi Watts, Jim Gaffigan, uh, the famous comedian, uh, Elizabeth Moss, who is in Mad Men. And it tells the story of the quote-unquote real Rocky Balboa. Uh, his name is Chuck Wepner. And... You know, he's an interesting figure. I actually watched the documentary on him on Netflix a while back. I think it's, I think it's called, like, The Real Rocky or something like that. And he was an interesting dude. And the movie looks almost like, like, a, like a Scorsese-style, you know, 70s, 80s era rock movie. You know, like, like in terms of, like, on the, in, the, in the soundtrack on the trailer. Like, it looks like they're trying to position it almost like a... Like a, like a, a an old school Scorsese movie. The trailer looks dynamite. The early reviews of which there are only 15, but the early reviews are pretty positive. 12 out of the 15 people who have submitted reviews gave it a positive review. Uh, like I said, the bleeder has been renamed into Chuck. So if you want to go like Google it or search for the trailer, uh, it comes, it goes into wide release. It looks like it's a pretty bananas movie. And, uh, he was an interesting character. And if you're into boxing movies, if you're into biopics, if you're into if you're into the Rocky movies, it's interesting to find the parallels between Rocky's, you know, the Rocky movies and Chuck Wepner's real life. They even have a guy playing a young Sylvester Stallone in the movie. So it it, it looks like it's going to be interesting in a few in a few ways, and I just love the talent involved. So I'm going to definitely be checking out Chuck. Uh, and I, I, I'm tempted to recommend that you guys do too, because based on whatever, everything I'm seeing, it should be on your radar. But all right, guys, uh, that is it for me for this week on El Fanboy. 
please send in your questions for topics you would like me to cover next week uh, with hashtag LFanboy, and I shall do my very, very best to get to each and every single one of those questions. All right? So thank you, guys. Uh, also keep your eyes on the LFanboy YouTube page. I know it's been a little dormant lately, but uh, I'm going to have a Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 review go up there soon, uh, probably Thursday afternoon, and uh, plenty more on the way. So catch you next week. Adios.